0: But everything that wound up in this thing, you know, worked. It had such a... It reminded you of whatever the show was, even though I had never seen it. You could see the heritage built in within it. But then it was still just undeniably a star vehicle and a a spectacle. Like, just a little bit of spectacle with some competent, you know, conspiracy-tinged storytelling. But with all of the noir sensibilities... That De Palma brings to the equation, and it's very different from all the movies that you know, was born from you know, its roots. But it it sank them deep with this one, and it I didn't always f- keep up with some of the newer ones. I had to c- circle back on a few of them, but this is the one that I keep you know close to my 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 side. I don't have to go looking for it. I know I love this movie. And I think that everyone who likes Mission Impossible should really do themselves a favor and come back to it because it's it's special. They don't make movies like this anymore. They stopped making movies like this right after they made this one, as the as, as Matt will discuss when we follow up with Mission Impossible 2. Uh, and
1: I think at, at the end of the day, he actually got locked out of the editing room for this movie um, by Cruz himself and just got you know, kicked to the curb, essentially. And, you know, I get, but I still get the sense that in the end, John Woo won out on his vision, his vision, because this film is just a cacophony of, of Woo-isms. Woo-isms. It's, it's, you know, slow motion, the dual-wielding pistols, the drop kicks, the bicycle kicks, the kung fu chops, and of course, the pigeons.
0: So many fucking
1: pigeons. he... He completely misses the point of the assignment. And I I don't think the film is completely without its merits, but this is the movie, this is the hump that we must get over before we get to greener pastures with this series. Hi, mind if I touch your wiener? Podcast. I am Matt, and that is Chuck, and this is episode number eight. Well, folks, it's official. After only one week, the summer blockbuster movie season has officially lost our attention. We're not exactly champing at the bit to devote our pursuit of cinematic knowledge to The Little Mermaid or the latest Fast and the Furious film, so we're going to be taking a bit of a detour into more worthwhile blockbuster filmmaking and we're starting our retrospective on the Mission Impossible films. For the next three weeks, we'll be looking at all six of the films. Of course, this isn't completely random because we're less than six weeks away from the series' penultimate installment, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, part one. Our reviews of the first two films are gonna be coming up a little bit later in the episode, but for now, we're gonna stay in the present with this week's news and our watch list. If you wanna jump around the episode, You'll find timestamps in the description. If you like what you see, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. If you like what you hear, go ahead and review us on the podcast service of your choice. But anyway, that's the business end of the show. Chuck, I'll turn it over to you.
0: Very happy that I had an excuse to watch these movies. Angie was not. She was not impressed. She was actually quite offended that I turned Twilight off and you know, reprogrammed our... evening the other day to watching both of these movies but you know that's just what domestic life is like there's compromise because these movies are very important to me and i'm very glad to have the opportunity to wax you know you know and sing their praises even if they are horrible films (laughs) but before we get into all that the writer's strike is still you know going on week two and the hits are really starting to to come. People are losing their their cushy contracts, shows are getting slowed down. People are getting called scabs. What is happening? What like who is really hurting the most right now?
1: Yeah, well, I guess it's probably the shows that, you know, haven't quite finished writing yet and are currently in production because what has happened this week is a couple more shows have been newly stalled out Um, we've got the hedge knight severance cobra kai daredevil born again and billions and um what it what has happened with most of these is that um they were in you know the the writing stages so there's really not much written so they just had to shut it down but in the case of billions and daredevil and severance they these productions were actually shut down by picketers by by picketers going to the locations and picketing so loud that they just had to shut them down wow so um, so yeah yeah,
0: adam conover he's winning
1: yeah it's it's extremely coordinated and yeah very very um sort of impressive that they can shut down these big productions and yeah, it's. I think we're going to be seeing probably more of this in the weeks ahead, as as long as this goes on, and um, yeah, I guess we'll kind of see what happens there. But yeah, in addition to these shows um, getting uh, newly stalled out, uh, a couple other happenings have have happened, and the f- the first thing was, you know, shortly after our episode last um, Monday. There was the um, MTV Movie Awards, which the host, Drew Barrymore, dropped out of a week before they happened. And I don't know if you saw any clips from this, but I did it not. is... Oh my God, it was a mess. Like just, I, I of course, I didn't watch it. I, I have no interest in these at all, but I, I did watch a couple clips and essentially... They canceled the live event because the picketers were planning on picketing the, the event had it well, happened. And who and, was
0: going to write the jokes?
1: Yeah, yeah, there's no there's no jokes. There's no, you know, a lot of people probably wouldn't have even shown up sort of in solidarity with the writers. And so what this show was reduced to was a, like, lame-ass clip show where they showed clips from uh, past years. Like, hey, remember when this happened? And then a bunch of, like, pre-taped segments um like they showed they showed drew barrymore's um initial like sketch that opened the show but then drew barrymore had no she had no like presence for the rest of the night so it was just really it felt very random
0: you mean there there wasn't like some rerun of like an old school jersey shore season they could have ran during that block instead like why even do this it's also pointless like who wants to watch that let alone make it
1: yeah, it was awful. They probably oh. would have gotten better ratings by doing a rerun of Jersey Shore, too. And, for real, though. And all the all the uh, they did the acceptance speeches for the awards, but they were all pre-taped and they were all clearly filmed in like the the actors and actresses backyards where they they quickly set up like a, you know, their phone camera. And it just was very low. production. It, and do you and, think
0: that they squeezed those in before the strike really hit?
1: I think, you know, I think that they were just very last minute. Because very last minute. The, I mean, the actors, they really have no, um, there's nothing barring them from, from filming, a acceptance speech, you know, okay. unless their jokes were like pre-written or something like that. But, um, yeah, it was awful. It was, it looks, I would encourage anyone to go look at clips online of this because it, it just was a train wreck. And, um, and speaking of train wrecks, um, Tony Gilroy got in a little bit of hot water this week because he continued production on Andor, um, but actually shut it down because he got a lot of flack. And I think him continuing production on that show sort of stemmed from an email that got circulated um, that was sent out to a lot of showrunners this past week that basically said, like... I think Disney and uh, Paramount were the two companies that sent these out and they were very similarly worded emails that basically said, Hey, showrunners, you need to come back into work, even though you can't write. And we're going to put you to work doing bitch jobs for the week. And if you don't come in, we're going to fucking fire you. Basically. That's what so, <laughs> so, so it's
0: not that he was actually working on Andor. It was that they were like having him file paperwork and like get people coffee. Was like, were they really making them just do? Possibly. Int- that is ridiculous.
1: Yeah, it's 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 incredibly degrading, and yeah, like they, you know, they 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 could, I suppose, do other stuff, you know, as you know, production more like production type stuff, casting type stuff, basically anything that's not writing or the, rewriting, the
0: administrative work, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Yeah. Oh, I'm just gonna dump some footage, you know, and then watch the yeah. dailies or something. Oh, vey. that is really over the top, but. See, and th- but then, like, yeah, when, it, when you the neg- the extension of that though is like, yeah, if you're not actively in production, are you doing anything with your overall deal? You know, like, or are you standing in solidarity with the writers, or are you just being quiet? you know, like, well, like you know, depending on how you're behaving. It doesn't really matter because it seems like everyone's kind of getting cut just as a cost saving measure. You know, it's it's Zaslav economics. It's his you know, like voodoo economics for the for the the industry now is to just cut all this dead weight because yeah, Ava Ava DuVernay you're there. We're paying you millions of dollars a year. And what the fuck are you making?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's that that's an extension of, of what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, Uh, DuVernay, I guess I didn't hear about that. Uh, what's, what's the story with her?
0: Her overall deal is just done. They've released her from it. They like bought her out essentially so that, you know, they could get her off the books. And okay. because it's unlike David Simon, another Warner, cause she was also in a Warner brothers deal. And, mm-hmm. but cause apparently with him, it's just because he's such a shitlord Lord on Twitter and was just going hard in the paint for the WGA and was like actively involved in their efforts and stuff. So they were just kind of like, yeah, we're he, from his point of view, it's because of his, you know, his union action. But from their point of view, it's just a cost saving measure because yeah, like, well, God, what was that fucking Baltimore show he just fucking put out that I've already forgotten the name of? God. We Own This City, right? Yeah, yeah like, like that. That was yeah. a long-ass wait for something that was pretty limp-dicked, ultimately. <laughs> and, yeah, I don't know. That's just my impression of the man, so I'm not too shocked. But from the sounds of it, it doesn't matter if you're a big name or not. Like, if they just have you on staff so they can, you know, plug you into the holes of any writer's room in their stable of shows you also are getting cut loose it's like it's like a almost like a firing squad sort of you know situation when you get down to it like it's kind of weird what is happening to this industry like is like is are we really like what does this tell us about the long-term effects going forward are we going to see deals like this anymore
1: I, I guess i don't know because yeah it's just um what they're what what the wj claims the studios are trying to do is basically turn the industry into like a gig economy where oh, you know everything oh, everything shit. is gonna be yeah i mean writers are basically going to be like uber drivers where everything's contract based and you're not you're not the employee of any company ever and you know you come on you sign on to do a show and then you're immediately out the door it's it's just like the video game industry works yeah you know people go and you work at a video game studio for you know four years making a video game and then the second the game ships They just they just lay off their entire squad and hire anew so that they can hire people for cheap. And you don't have to give anybody raises. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to extend any sort of loyalty to people who have been working there for, you know, a decade or two decades. You know, it's they're they're trying to do it all on the cheap.
0: Yeah. Yikes. That really kind of drives it home, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And you're all working from home anyway. You know, that's also probably part of it because if you're not actually on set and you're you all just in a zoom call like the the last movie to win best picture literally has a few frames that are of a zoom call of them during the pandemic making the movie which is one of like the i don't know but that that says a lot about where the industry is at even so yeah it is just gonna be it's gonna get more dystopian more cyberpunk and they are going to be, it's, it's so crazy because the whole point of these organizations is to create some sort of guarantee for its members that they'll be able to thrive, survive, or at the very least subsist. And it's getting harder and harder to do any of those three. So like, what is the point of being a member of these organizations anyway, that you might as well be freelance and command as much as you can for the value of your work as you can individually? Because what's the point of the collective?
1: yeah and that's you know part of the reason why i mean i really do hope that they the writers do get somewhere uh i think if they can hold out long enough they will just like last time yeah um because i think i mean th- this is like a if the if the companies win on this it's like a lose situation for everybody exactly. but them but these so i mean i'm rooting for the writers i hope that they get somewhere and we will continue to report on this probably weekly um until something resolves
0: because that is the thing you're absolutely right the the little guys need to win here other -hmm. uh, otherwise we are just doomed to you know algorithmically generated horrors you know that like have no human involvement apart from People having their you know like biometric data scanned by a computer so it can be you know replicated digitally the we don't need that like we need the the actual human element and the actual humans involved are crying out so hopefully they are heard and i really don't like i'm kind of at the point where i'm like oh all this stuff is grinding to a halt we have nothing on late night television like nothing of value has been lost because that's kind of the what's getting in the way of you know all of this is oh we just have to keep this thing you know going it's too big to fail these things need to break down every once in a while for the right reasons and it's going to be fascinating to see where it winds up because the stuff that squeaked through that we you know it, it can be released to us as as new you know is you know, still probably you know like worth watching you know as, lo- as long as they're giving it to us this one I didn't really understand what it was. I thought this was like some spin-off from like FBI, you know, like investigates, you know, like on CBS or something. I, I didn't really understand what the premise of this was. And then I watched the trailer. But what are the first two episodes like?
1: Yeah, so this is uh, Class of 09, which is a new Hulu show from uh, showrunner Tom Rob Smith, who um, did American Crime Story more specifically, the, the uh, Versace season of that show. Okay. And so, um, yeah, pretty good pedigree here. And what this show basically is, it's a show about FBI agents. And the sort of gimmick behind the show is that it takes place over three different time periods. Uh, 2006, when all of the agents are sort of new recruits at Quantico and they're being trained... And then uh, present day, uh, 2023, where they're sort of all in the middle of their careers. And then 2034 in the future, when they're kind of finding themselves being made redundant by technology and sort of all splitting off in their separate ways and their lives haven't turned out quite the way that they thought they were going to. And um, yeah, this is pretty decent so far, um, I, I like it, um, the, the gimmick is cool, the three different time periods, it kind of keeps the show fresh, it keeps the show from being, you know, one of those, uh, prime time, um, like, like, uh, crime shows that are on, on, like, ABC or NBC or CBS, you know, it's not quite that, you know, bottom of the barrel level, um, it's decent enough, and, Um, I I really like like it so far. Um, The standout performance is probably uh, Brian Tyree Henry. And he especially, you know, does a good job of portraying his character at three different time periods, because when you meet him at Quantico, he's a he's sort of the um, the guy who you don't think is going to pass, you know, he's like an overweight guy, he can't even pass the physical test. Uh, he almost gets kicked out of the academy. And then, in the future timeline, he has actually become the director of the FBI. Oh, okay. so it's 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 interesting to watch him go on that journey from sort of like the underdog to like the authoritative like uh director of of the FBI. and um yeah, I, it, it's very interesting. The only complaint I really have about it is that it's after two episodes, I don't really have a idea of where the show is going because they've, they, they have to set up all three of these timelines and because they've had to have done that, they haven't really done a good job of setting up like the main thrust of the show, like the, the uh-huh. main plot that's going to, you know, carry us from episode one to episode eight. And it's just kind of like, I don't really know where it's going yet. And I, um, I, I guess I'll probably keep watching though, because the, the idea is interesting. It's, you know, especially in that future timeline, the future timeline is all about how, you know, AI has basically made these agents redundant. Everything is based off of, you know, algorithms or what the computer says that we should do or how we should proceed. And, and, you know, it's, it's it kind of shows how that, has affected their careers because back in 2006 when they were coming into the academy you know their 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 careers were very very different
0: wow well you've sold me holy shit like my mind is just running wild with all the places it could go but i think it is fair of you to bring up the fact that like when you have a high concept you're like a quote-unquote gimmick like this that is as you know, in interesting you know and you know and it you know provoking it really should be giving you something narratively too at this point like if true detective like it's, it's the crime of true detective season 2 versus 1 and 3 because in those first episodes of the bookend Pizzolatto seasons you, you know by the jump what the fuck is going down and like where it's going to be there's a mystery but you you're not wondering what where, like where it's going and like what the possibilities are, but I don't know. Yeah. It shouldn't be leaving. you wanting, you know, with they've invested so much into making this thing, you know, work otherwise. Cause that's the same problem that air had. Um, Cause like a lot of people during 2020, one of the only things that fueled me and kept me alive um, was being able to watch, you know, content still. Which is why I was so grateful to all the writers and creatives out there that had been able to make stuff, and the documentarians. And those people, you know, included that group that did The Last Dance. And another guy was watching The Last Dance out there, and when they saw the part about how Nike was able to woo Michael Jordan... He was like wow that should be a movie and then he went and wrote the screenplay for it and then ben affleck and matt damon found it and then it got made into a fucking movie you know written directed and starring matt damon and ben affleck so yeah a lot of pedigree here and it has the possibility of being really cool and in general it's pretty good but the old, the unfortunate thing undermining it and i'll just put it out there right away is that there's not a hell of a lot of drama here it's it's kind of it's held up by the performances. It's held up by the production design, you know, that gets the nineteen eighty four kitsch just right and gets it so real, you know, without getting exaggerated and nostalgic about it. Like it, everything looks like shit. The office is the most gross. The at Nike is the most. The set dressing is disgusting, and everything just looks really bad and like still trapped in the seventies in a way, and it just doesn't like quite get as high as everyone involved thinks they're getting in terms of how invested it and emotionally grabbing like i you know it was to me because ultimately it just comes down to a bunch of board meetings and the people who wrote this weren't as good as aaron sorkin as making it you know you know fast-paced and interesting there is good writing here I'll, i'll say that Uh, Chris Messina really gets all the good lines and he's playing David Falk, Michael Jordan's agent. But yeah, yeah, Ben Affleck is really fun as Phil Knight. Like there are just like fun, exaggerated, you know, versions of real people, but it's nothing really too special. But at the beginning of the, of the movie is this thing that says skydance sports. So this skydance, I'm not sure a lot of what their history is, but they have a division devoted just to making sports movies. Apparently And if they're just going to be going to 30 for 30s and, like, lifting story ideas from them, I have some suggestions. I would really, really love for them to, you know, be some real bros and do Elway to Marino. Because that is something that could really have some drama, have some, you know, actual, like, you know, like, you know, truly inside football, like, you know, fly on the wall, you know, you know tellings of a lot of these crazy stories like this where john elway basically bullied the Colts into trading him and you know caused chaos to ripple through to affect dan marino you know a fellow hall of famer who was also a client of the central attorney of the narrative like that documentary just lays it out perfectly the man literally has his legal pads with his minute notes that he would keep about conversations and shit so the research is done like you have it all, but there's a lot of good meaty roles there. The two Escobars, I think I've talked about this before about Pablo Escobar and then the soccer player who had shared the same surname on the Colombia national team, you know, and that story is just nuts. It deserves to be told. But if there was one that I think had the, the most certainty, the best chance of being made it survive in advance which tells the story of the North Carolina Wolfpack national championship team coached by Jim Valvano, which is guaranteed to give somebody an Oscar if they play that role. I'll just say that, you know, it just hits all the the right butterflies. Like where's Jerry Bruckheimer? Why the fuck didn't you make this movie for crying out loud? But yeah, it's worth your time if you've got nothing else going on. But Tetris is a better version of this movie. I'll just say that. Oh,
1: sure. Yeah. Yeah, I was, you had posed this question about, you know, what sports stories should be adapted. And, yeah. and the one that I thought of was, um, there's the sort of Netflix equivalent to 30 for 30 uh, called Untold. Um, yeah. And I was thinking back to episodes of that. And there's one uh, called Crimes and Penalties that is about the um, the UHL specifically, which is the um, sort of minor league hockey uh, organization in the U.S. Ooh. And there was a team, um, I think it was, let's see, what was it? The Danbury Thrashers based out in Connecticut in the, I think, 90s. And this team was bought by the like trash mafia uh, magnet that Tony Soprano was based on and what he did is he basically he bought the team and just ran it into the ground and just made like bad decision after bad decision and he actually installed his 17 year old son as the team's general manager and And his, his son's
0: name was aj
1: yeah yeah oh yeah it was that's right yeah and yeah, so his like seventeen-year-old son was like ordering around all of these like thirty-year-old like minor league hockey players, and just that he just ran it into the ground. And eventually, um, you know, he got picked up for all of his crimes and had to like sell off the the team, and it's defunct now. But it, I think that could make for a good story.
0: I got good news for you, Matt. You picked a good one.
1: Oh, it's happening <laughs>
0: because uh, director Cooper rafe uh, the guy, the the. The filmmaker and actor who did Cha Cha Real Smooth is going to yeah. be making the movie telling this story. It's going to be okay. starring David Harbour and Cooper Hoffman. And it's oh, yeah. So that I know that yeah, like that that is at the bottom of the wiki article about it. So I will I will trust Deadline Hollywood. That's exciting. Okay, I'm glad I know about that now. Mm-hmm. So. What can you report from the realm of jeopardy? Like have they finally involved like a guillotine? Like if you <laughs> if you don't press the button fast enough does your head get lopped off now?
1: Well, they have changed up some of the rules and I will I will get to why I think that is annoying, but this is Jeopardy Masters, which is the primetime version of Jeopardy that's hosted by Ken Jennings Uh, He splits the hosting duties now with Maya MB Alex. She does like the daytime regular game show. And then he does like these special episode, uh, Uh uh, you know, like week week long things. And this one takes a bunch of um, recent uh, people who have just done really well on the show and puts them in a tournament together, including um, Amy Schneider, who had like a 39 game run recently. And. James Holhauser, who is just, like, legendary at this point as the guy who always goes in no matter what. Um, and this, yeah, this is really, really good. I mean, I'm, I'm a Jeopardy fan. I think it's, like, one of the most perfect game shows out there. And um, it's nice, after watching the last one of these, which was the celebrity tournament, it's nice to get a version of the show that actually has hard questions because yeah. those... Oh my God, some of those like softball, T-ball questions that they were serving up to the celebrities were, were so awful. And they were, it was so easy and it just, it, it made it less fun to watch where they're, they're giving these people the hard questions. And so it's a lot more fun to watch. But the one thing that is really weird that I don't like about what they're trying to do is ever since Trebek died, the producers of the show have been trying to, like, leave their mark on this show in some way or another. Um, And it's kind of annoying because it's like, just leave the show the way it is. It's perfect the way it is. And now what they're trying to do is they're showing the audience where, like, the double jeopardy um, uh, questions are and i don't know why they're doing that it seems very pointless it seems to just kind of eat up time more than anything and i think that maybe people they're trying to sort of bite back against the idea that people thought that maybe they were like cheating and like showing like um specific player or like telling specific players where the double jeopardy questions were and I think that was like a rumor for a while. And so I don't know if they're trying to like fight back against that in some way, like we're being
0: transparent.
1: Yeah. We're being more transparent. And so I don't know, it's, it's odd and I, I I really don't like it. And a lot of these producers are really trying to like leave their mark on the show. I don't know if you remember this, but back when they were trying to do their host search, um, I didn't didn't
0: really pay too much attention to what was actually going on, but I know it happened. There was, yeah, the,
1: one of the producers of the show, um, basically put on like a sham host search where he basically pretended like he, they were looking for a new host and they were doing all these these guest hosts to basically give them like trial runs. But at in the very end, he always was gonna put himself as the new host of the show. Like it was all just a sham. And what? And he? That's
0: fucking yeah. gross.
1: Yeah, it, it's crazy. It, it's pretty wild because. He actually for, for, you know, what they did is they basically gave various people like week long stretches where they they did trial runs. And among those people were a bunch of like newscasters. I know Katie Couric was one of the eligible people and and Ken Jennings, of course. And and this producer put him he gave himself a week long, you know, stint. And then at the very end of the host search, he was like, no, it's gonna be me. I'm gonna do it, and and it was all just a sham, basically. That people found that out through like uh, leaked emails and stuff.
0: Jesus Christ! And how long did that last?
1: It, it it didn't last at all. He he basically he they announced that he was gonna become the permanent host, and then somebody leaked those those emails or those memos. Basically saying that that was always the plan. Oh and then God. he got fired from the show and he's no longer a producer on it.
0: God bless. That's a, that's amazing. Now, yeah. Jeopardy was always the show I would watch with my grandma after I'd go swimming at the Mott public pool. And yeah, it's, I, yeah, it's
1: classic. It's, I need to it get holds back a lot of it. memories. Absolutely.
0: And mm-hmm. especially because it was like so hard Which makes me upset that they didn't just brutalize those celebrities, like the ninnies that they are. But now the time has come. It's time to get into the meat of the episode this week. And I am so grateful that I get to talk about Brian De Palma's, you know, the initial, the prototype of these Mission Impossible movies. It, this movie is, it's not in my top anything, but it means a great deal to me. My parents bought it on VHS. And I will always associate this movie with that 4 3 grain, you know, that was worn into that fucking tape. Because I watched that thing so much. And it didn't matter that it was all blown out and that our TV was shit. This movie was the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my life when I was eight years old. And it all just, you know, came down to. You know all of the qualities you know, that Tom Cruise brings to it. You know he was he was so awesome, and you know just as a, a movie star at that time, you know like for some reason he wasn't considered to be a weirdo yet. My parents still thought he was cool, you know, and so I could think he was cool by extension. I, I wore sunglasses like he did. I did like the whole you know, pretend like I was you know, recording people. You know like with the camera in my bridge, but what makes this movie cook and work is its director and that trio of writers. Like, I don't know how the fuck they got all three of those guys to, you know, you know, write on, on something together. I know I'm not sure what was used from who, but everything that wound up in this thing, you know, worked. It had such a, it reminded you of whatever the show was, even though I had never seen it, you could see the heritage built in within it. But then it was still just undeniably a star vehicle and a a spectacle, like just a little bit of spectacle with some competent, you know, conspiracy tinged storytelling, but with all of the noir sensibilities that De Palma brings to the equation. And it's very different from all the movies that, you know, was born from, you know, its roots, but it, it sank them deep with this one. And, it i didn't always f- keep up with some of the newer ones i had to c- circle back on a few of them but this is the one that i keep you know close to my 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 side i don't have to go looking for it i know i love this movie and i think that everyone who likes mission impossible should really do themselves a favor and come back to it because it's it's special they don't make movies like this anymore they stopped making movies like this right after they made this one as the as as matt will discuss when we follow up with mission impossible 2 but what what was what was your relationship with this movie
1: yeah i i mean i remember seeing it um eventually when it came out I, i didn't see it in theaters but i distinctly remember that you know my my mom went out and bought the dvd and you know like my, my, for some reason, I don't. I still don't know why this is a fact, but my mom was like one of the like early adopters of the DVD format, for and her. I had, I, I had a DVD player in my house like way before, like a lot of you know my friends or family and stuff like that. And I still don't really know why that was the case. I don't know. I don't think she had any sort of special like knowledge of like the film industry and knew that it was gonna be the one that survived over like Laserdisc or VHS, but. I distinctly remember her, you know, buying the the DVD and and watching it all the time. And yeah, I mean, like you said, thinking it was really, really cool, just like really, really, you know, badass. And um, but going back to it now, I sort of appreciate it for the sort of uh, the, the only one of these movies that is, you know, truly like auteur driven where, you know, you can tell, yes, it is sort of a blockbuster film but it's only partly that it's still you know this vision of brian de palma he still gets his he still leaves his mark on the movie with the you know the close-ups and like the canted angles and the whip pans Mm -hmm. and you know it's 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 a filmmaker's movie still and it's it's why it's one of i think the the better installments of this series and one that I think a lot of people, when they think about, they sort of see it as being dated or see it as being sort of cheesy. And I think it holds up a lot better than some films in this franchise, including one that was made four years after this movie that we'll talk about later. And um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed going back to it. And um, before we go any further, though, yeah, I wanted to ask you... Um, you know, just to kind of set up this entire series that we're about to do over the next three weeks, Um, which one of these films that you have seen, um, you know, of of the six that are out now, have you seen them all?
0: I have. Yeah, I'm fully caught up. I'm fully
1: caught up. Okay. So you have seen them all in the past. And so, yeah, I just want to get that out of the way. And then also, let me ask you this question. Um, What, in your opinion, makes a good Mission Impossible film? And
0: uh, it it is a combination of things, but I have to have, like, I I have to have a ticking clock. It is, you have to light that fuse, motherfuckers, you know, like, there has to be something that's going to blow up. That like you you know it's coming. You you're seeing that fuse get smaller and smaller and burn and burn away. You're seeing the timer tick down to zero. And once it hits zero, everything's gonna be fucked unless Tom Cruise can run fast enough and jump higher than anybody else and punch you know harder and take more punches than any man alive. Like this man takes a fucking motorcycle to the face at least four times in this ser- This entire series. So. Yeah, the, it, it, that's what it, that's what a mission impossible movie is. If it if it's going to be worth my time at all, even like that's why like I even have love for the worst ones. But I don't know the more recent ones are like pr- more I guess maximalist, absolutely. But the it doesn't matter like how quaint or, you know, you know, blown up they are. They just have to take me on a fucking ride and you know yeah. and then rub my face along the, the street a little bit. You know, here and there, you know, cause yeah, these movies always hit hard and like you, like, and I guess that was always the appeal, like as far as you, as I've, as a, where I'm at now, that's what I think about when I think of a Mission Impossible movie.
1: Yeah, same. I mean, it's like, for me, it's, they need to set up, you know, this seemingly impossible situation or mission and then they come up with a plan and over the course of the movie everything that could possibly go wrong goes wrong and they and then you you watch the creative and genius ways in which they adapt the plan to come out Mm -hmm. on top and that's kind of what makes makes a good mission impossible movie to me and and more recently yeah like you said they've become they definitely veered more towards the blockbuster um uh you know sentiment but I don't think it's done the series a disservice because I think the the later movies in this series are among the best, or at least that's that's the the idea I have going into this series that we're doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like um it's I don't know, it can be a lot of things though. I mean, I think you could adapt this um this series this this ip onto a lot of things and i think we're going to see that as we talk about these movies Mm. because number one feels very different from number two which feels very different than number three which and uh, you know i think they become a lot more alike once you get like a singular vision on them because Macquarie has now done the last two plus the dead reckoning the seventh one that's going to come out so it's definitely become a lot more of a singular vision more recently, but I these movies are a lot more different than people give them credit for.
0: Oh yeah, and I think that is why they endure, in a mm-hmm. sense, because they, they ha- it has been so adaptable to, yeah, what filmmakers are popular right now. What kinds of movies are popular now? Like you you don't, you could almost say that yeah, we're getting a little bit of it's not Marvel vacation because like that's that's cheap to you know, slap it with that label. But it's it's more than that. Like, there's a reason why Mission Impossible 2 is the way it is. There's a reason why Mission Impossible 1 was the way it is. But eventually, like, yeah, well, you get when you get the J.J. Abrams movie in the sequence and you you get and then all of a sudden you have the Brad Bird, you know, appearance. It's because that's the era where people were just being given the opportunity to make crazy event movies. You know, certain filmmakers were being given their shot and this was a franchise that you know with with producers open to just grabbing the best and brightest and giving them all the fucking you know tools yet you know in, or you know, to facilitate all their craziest ideas because that is the other thing it's like they push the limit you know t- typically like you know, the whole point in in getting different you know directors involved i think on cruise's part is to Oh yeah, we gotta just take it to the next level, man. We gotta, we gotta amp up this part of it. You know, I love the last movie, man, but you know it was a little too artsy. So I think we get John Woo, we get all that crazy action and his, the cinematography in there, and it'll be just spectacular. Oh but, oh, but we gotta amp up the story. We gotta make it more interesting. We gotta make the stakes crazier. Oh, he has to have a crazy another love interest, but you know she looks more like my my wife now. You know, like and that's just kind of how it goes for, you know, like the duration of this series. Um, but I think that's why it works, it, it, because you have this, this kook at the helm of it who is, you know, it's a star driven franchise and it's, it's like the only one left. And it, it, like, I guess, is, is is that a major driver also behind his, its success? It's because for some reason, the, the star and the franchise itself still just have sustained each other as opposed to just dragging each other down. Mm hmm. Because why, why, yeah, yeah. Hollywood, well, yeah, Hollywood easily could have just recast him or elevated like Jeremy Renner, you know, and, yeah. and and then made it terrible, you know, but yeah, it didn't do that. It still is the man.
1: Yeah. Well, it's I think it's kind of a, you know, whether whether or not you feel good or bad about it, it's a testament to. Um, from this very first one, the you know, the first things, one of the first things you see when the opening credits come up are Cruz Wagner Productions, which is the uh, now defunct production company that was started by Tom Cruise and his then agent, Paula Wagner. And so from the very beginning, this was a Tom Cruise joint, you know, no matter who, distracted. no matter what other... You know no matter what other director you put on these films it's always gonna come back to cruises vision or his egomania or whatever you want to call it and um so i mean he he really like wedged his way in there from from the beginning and we're i mean the second it kind of comes to a head with the second film which we'll talk about but um but yeah just to get back back to the 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 first one here just to start out, I mean, this this film starts off with like one of the all timer best, you know, scenes. And it's that sort of that mission that goes wrong uh, in Prague. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I know I remember it being controversial because especially with like the Mission Impossible fans of yep. the TV series, because he you know, the entire team gets killed off, including Uh, John Voight's character who was the protagonist of the TV show or killed off Um, but um, yeah I mean what do you you think of of this sort of opening series of scenes?
0: I will say that this is the thing that pissed my parents off about it because yeah like we don't want to spoil it I guess anything for anyone who hasn't seen this ancient fucking movie it's almost 30 fucking years old for crying out loud but uh, it, uh, it it was you know, because my mom watched the TV show growing up, and that was her beef with it was that oh Tom Cruise just took over this thing and he killed off you know, you know all the, the characters I liked you know or whatever. But it was you know a really fucking b- b- ballsy thing to do because you it, it lulls the people who were fans of it into a false sense of security. They think they're just watching a, oh, oh, it's just going to be a really good episode, you know, of TV here. And then, oh no, motherfuckers, you're in a fucking movie theater. Shit's about to get real, you know, like, and yeah, it, it, it really, that is the strength of it though, is is the fact that it did the whole, you know, it it did the cynical corporate, you reset the franchise thing, but it, it wasn't done in a cynical way or for cynical reasons. You know, I don't think ultimately it served what made it shocking and like made the the whole ride of the movie thrilling. Because yeah, like you, now you're stuck with Ethan Hunt trying to figure out what the fuck happened. It's it's not quite as egregious as like kadeo Kojima tricking people who played Metal Gear Solid Two: Sons of Liberty into thinking that they were going to be playing a Solid Snake the whole time, but maybe it's similar in that respect.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's just a. Uh an amazing sequence and um you know just watching them all kind of get murked one by one and and you've got like big name actors in there that are just getting killed off after like five minutes of screen time and including um my one of my favorite parts of this movie emilio estevez just being like completely like like the Mighty Ducks guy getting crushed by an elevator, and I just, I his presence in this film is just like so like baffling to me. I mean, it it works, it still works. He's not out of place, I would say necessarily, but some of his like lines, like the hostile lasagna, don't get any on, get any on you. It's just ridiculous. Oh, and, it's great. Um, but yeah, uh, exactly.
0: It, it, but it's what like what makes it work though, is because you have these people, like they oh, they have star armor. They wouldn't get murdered in the first like act of any movie that they're in, and then boom, John Voigt's dead. Boom, you know, Emilio Estevez is getting his eyes poked out by cables. I don't know. I always thought it was funny. It was almost like a character just pressed enter on a computer button, and then those things shot down and then impaled him on his eyes. Oh God, because he was my favorite character. You know, when I was a little kid, for some reason, I thought yeah. he was so cool because he said things like hostile lasagna don't get any on you and the that piece of gum that has the the like the the red and green sides of it that when you mash it together it turns into an explosive i thought that was Mm -hmm. so like novel i would do that with my own gum because i would i would role play ethan hunt when i was a kid Mm -hmm. unironically like that's that's how invested into this movie i was
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just it's very similar to, you know, playing, you know, um, make believe as like James Bond or something like that, because they give him so many cool gadgets and so many cool little pieces of tech and um, the mask pulls like, yeah, like
0: that, like that trope. It was born in this movie. That is a testament to the strength of it because of how how long it has endured throughout it. But red light, green light, that piece of gum, it hasn't popped up again, has it?
1: Yeah, I don't think so. I think it's just in this one. And, you know, they need to bring that's...
0: that back. They need to Simon they, Pig know, just needs to throw a piece of gum at, at Ethan Hunt and be like, you know what to do, you know, in the middle of like a <laughs> crazy sequence. But speaking of that, Estevez has said in an interview that Cruz regretted having his character be killed. Mm. And you can you can kind of see how they were always searching for another Emilio Estevez until they settled on the recurring elements that have started appearing since, uh, that was since the third one, I suppose. Right.
1: Simon Pegg.
0: Yeah. Like Sin- or, yeah. 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 I
1: think he he's been, yeah. been in them since three, but yeah, they've always tried to sort of replace that character with like the Australian guy from part two. Mm-hmm. Um, they were trying to, I think do that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of that comic relief type, um, you know, but I guess it's kind of he's he's a little redundant because um the hacker character is Ving Rhames and you Absolutely. can't have two hackers, you know. And so that's true. Um, but yeah, that's that that's very interesting. And um speaking of um what do, how do you feel about Ving? just like the weirdest casting ever, like this this giant black guy as the like smartest guy in these series of films and the only guy who's who's been in every single one of these movies except for tom cruise and so i don't know how do you feel about ving rames and his portrayal of uh, luther strickland
0: because this was him at the height of his powers you know post pulp fiction like this man could literally do whatever the fuck he wanted to and to be in, in this playing that role yeah yeah he made that it made that character more interesting to make him be a, like a beefy cool black dude with a you know, a shaved head and an ear and a gold earring like it just made you go like what the fuck is that guy do-? you know, been and done and, and that's kind of like he had mystique you know he that's what he really bring brought to the character in this movie at any rate because the, the in in their meet cute when they're like recruiting him it's like you get his resume and he just sells it perfectly you know just that oh yeah that was me i took pride in that or like like but like oh, oh, what, oh. it's like i had nothing to do with that with that magnificent piece of work and i don't know like the, that line delivery was just so good but yeah it, he is another part of it you can't have a mission impossible movie without ving rames in it so it, it like there's like you, you gotta have tom cruise you gotta have him and then you gotta have his his backup you gotta have luther on like a phone or like on a headset being like ethan you gotta do this bang 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 you are like that you gotta have that it's essential to yeah. it
1: yeah yeah he, he's great he's he makes the most of his uh of his you know pretty small amount of screen time and and um yeah i mean and speaking of that speaking of sort of making the most of your screen time um the the, the aquarium scene and yes henry cerny um henry cerny sort of pops up and uh yeah he does i mean that whole sequence is just incredible just so well done and he's another um guy who of all the weird sort of quirks of this franchise probably one of the weirdest or what's going to be one of the weirdest is this man this actor who hasn't been in any of these movies since this first one is suddenly gonna be in dead reckoning so i'm very curious i mean this movie more than even though it's the very first one in the franchise and it's nearly 30 years old, this movie is probably going to tie the most to the next one than any of the other previous ones, probably. I mean, because of that fact that Henry Cerny is, is going to be in it. So yeah. What, what do you think of the, the aquarium scene?
0: Iconic. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, it's, it's the slow boil. Cause yeah, it's, I don't know the, I just want to break down. I want to set up that sequence. He uh, Ethan Hunt has just literally seen the whole his whole team get wiped, and uh, you know he's and he watched on his little you know like camera his 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 movie watch that he had that had like perfect resolution in nineteen ninety six, so he could see you know Phelps you know bleeding out on a bridge, and then and then he's running. He finds a payphone. He screws like a special like piece of hardware on it and then he calls in and he's talking to uh henry cerny's character and he's just like my team is dead you know and he's just like freaking out you know and yeah. he doesn't know what's going on and then henry cerny's character is just like hey just like meet me at this restaurant in prague i'll meet me i'll meet with you myself and then cruz is like wait a minute you're in prague and he's just like an hour hang up and then that scene happens and it you just have Hunt like knowing like he knows exactly what he's walking into, and you as the audience member are being given all the same information that Hunt is picking up, and if you are an observant watcher, you also are figuring out exactly what's happening too, and the all the I don't know the all like the slow like peeling back of the revelations of oh yeah we, this whole project was just trying to find who was fucking us over and it's you, you piece of shit. You know, that's what I loved about him. He just gets so like blunt at the end of it. Like when he's like, enough is enough hunt. You've lied cajoled and killed. And I'm going to make sure you, you die in hell or like whatever the fuck he says. But the, 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 the explosion that it builds to, you know, with the, the water gushing down, did they let Tom Cruise actually be like on set when that whole thing went off? when he runs away from it, is that actually him?
1: I think so. Yeah. I think it is him because yeah, it'd be very, it'd be very hard to fake that in because the shot, when, when the aquarium explodes and then the window of the restaurant explodes outwards, it's, it's, you know, shot from the front. It's not like, you know, they're not doing the stunt man thing where it's shooting him from the back of the head or whatever. And so that would have been very hard to fake in the nineties. So I, I believe it is actually him. And I, I, I think the way that they did it is they essentially just um you know had a bunch of a, a shitload of water in a tank and then just dumped it all and and then you know that big front window of the restaurant they just made it a uh, you know a breakaway window that was made of fake glass and just had him sort of stay one step ahead of the water and and i think that's how they did it but yeah it's very unique i mean this movie starts um, you know from the very beginning again like the sort of trend that we've seen in all these movies of Cruz like needing to do his own stunts like needing to prove for some reason that he can do his own stunts you know whether it be his his own hubris or you know trying to glorify the powers of Xenu or whatever it is he he has to do his own stunts
0: yeah or he's just doing it because it's fun who knows but yeah iconic either way and that's really what makes this movie strong to me is that it's just like one awesome thing after another because yeah. you you get bogged down in a little bit of the this you know the, the twisty turny storytelling you know which is really silly you know especially the whole thing about how he hops onto some bible like web forum and yeah. then just like you know is able to communicate with an arms dealer somehow he just cracks the code like a genius like, that, that whole, you know, bit is silly. But I guess, I, before we get too deep in the weeds, what do you think of the love interest in this movie? Or is, is she, like, a non-love interest? She's just, like, a femme fatale more than she's anything else. And that's pretty unique in these movies, unless I'm misremembering. I guess there's there are, yeah. femme, there are other, like, female characters that fit that bill, too. But, it, and it was, I'm glad there wasn't, like, an outright, like, Oh, I love you so much, Ethan. Oh, I'm going to save you, baby. That kind of damsel in distress bullshit going on. Because that got kind of yeah. lame after a while. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Emmanuel Beret, the actress, I believe is her name. And she, um, I, I, from what I remember, they had shot like actual, like, you know, PG-13 sex scenes between her and Cruz and chose to leave them out of the movie and sort of just imply a lot of things instead yeah. which i think was the right call because it, it was unnecessary i mean it does create for sort of a weird atmosphere without those scenes when when he like has that weird interrogation on the bed where he's like laying on top of her it's just sort of weird without the context of yeah. those love scenes but um yeah it was fine i i find her presence in the film completely inoffensive i guess i'm glad that they didn't uh, use her, you know, in the other movies.
0: Yeah, yeah. G- g- gratefully, she got to stay dead, you know, unlike mm-hmm. her husband. But yeah, wouldn't it be something if they brought like Skeletor, John Void out in Dead Reckoning? <laughs> that would really be that would something.
1: Be, that would be incredible. Yeah, that would be that would be absolutely nuts. Um, I mean, I'm I'm glad that the the series hasn't veered too far in the you know Cuckoo Gonzo shit like that yet.
0: But, Indeed, yeah. Um,
1: yeah
0: but like who else really stood out in this cast i guess like the whole cast really slaps like because we got yeah i mean you got
1: uh gene reno and um he's he's really great i i personally i love how he's kind of the guy who's just like working you know strictly for himself and that scene you know where Cruz tricks him um and and then the one i i probably my favorite scene with him is um, and this is sort of a weird detail that I noticed how they tried to sort of make in the, in these first two films, they tried to make Ethan Hunt into almost like this Batman type character where he doesn't like to kill people. And then they just abandoned that for the rest of the series. But yep. there is that scene where Gene Reno is about to stab that firefighter and Tom Cruise grabs his arm and is like, you know, like no casualties or whatever. and And so that was an interesting little detail that they tried to sort of superimposed on his character, um, but they just abandoned him because he's just gunning people down <laughs> in like the later movies. And um, I'm glad, I'm glad for that though. There's enough like, you know, Batman type characters out there.
0: And in this movie, I think that that is only in there so that they can kind of set um, the uh, Jean news character up to be a, a, a turncoat villain, you know, at some point yeah. later on in the movie. Because, <laughs> yeah, because he's the because heli- he's also a helicopter pilot, apparently. Yeah. Like, he's, conveniently for the for the end, but yeah, he, he shows up along with Ving Rhames right when, like, the, the 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 stakes have been set. You know, it's like, okay, I'm gonna find out who Job is if I can steal the thing that I was trying to protect at the beginning of the movie. But he, the, the Langley sequence. Which is yes. which is the, the, the price of admission you pay to see it this one because it's when he's dangling on the wires. I- Iconic isn't even enough. Like this is like burned into the silver screen forever. This 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 part of the movie. What what about it works?
1: Yeah, I mean it's just it's it's a masterful just like ratcheting up of, of tension. And as I was saying, you know, earlier in our review This is the scene where, you know, they concoct the plan and everything seems, you know, airtight and then things, you know, things start going wrong and they have to overcome it. You know, one, you know, step by step, they have to overcome each thing that goes wrong. And yeah, I love this scene, just how, you know, they, I mean, this is such a, this is such an impractical room. Like it doesn't make any sense like how it's like temperature controlled and like the floor is like pressurized. It, It senses like pressure and it's so impractical, but it still works. And, you know, how De Palma cuts out all of the music for this sequence. It's just, you know, all you can hear is either silence or just like Ethan Hunt's grunts as he like, you know, falls 20 feet or, you know, gets caught up on the rope and um yeah just i I love everything about it and and especially especially how it ends with the the knife fall you know falling and then stabbing right into the into the desk as sort of the thing that gives them away and yeah i just incredible and it's been parodied to death at this point like i this this scene has been in i believe in one at least one of the earlier scary movie you know mm-hmm. um installments and and more than that too i mean it, it was parodied to death on i'm sure like snl and mad tv and all that and like stuff kid and,
0: cartoons because yeah. yeah like we really need to shout out the music in this movie you know it's it's danny elfman's score really restrained for that guy yeah. it really it, it it's it's pitch perfect because uh, I forgot I forget that he did it. That is like how good it is in that way. It serves the movie very well. But the what did you think of the end credit version by um Bono and the Edge?
1: Oh god, I I don't know. Da- I don't think da- I stuck da- around da- for da-
0: that. Yeah, like it, it almost yeah. sounds like uh the Kill Bill theme. Like it has that oh, it has that yeah. same vibe to it.
1: Yeah, well, at least it's not the limp biscuit like, <laughs> like, <laughs> in the second one. <laughs>
0: oh, we'll we'll get to that. Because yeah. yeah, like uh, I just want to mention one other thing about the Langley, yeah. the, the Langley situation, and I guess the and the, I guess another Mission Impossible trope as well after that. Um, but it, it, at the conclusion, like the the poor like CIA agent, the William Donlow guy who's just the technician who sits at the knock desk. Who finds the knife and rio is able to you know re- know that the the knock list has been accessed and he's getting you know the and and henry cerny's is talking to his subordinate and he's just like tell no one of this you understand this didn't fucking happen and he's like okay well, what do i do with him you're, you're you're gonna send him to a listening station in alaska at the end of the day just mail him his clothes <laughs> that guy like if Dead Reckoning doesn't involve them winding up at some listening station in Alaska with William Donlow, like still there, like with a beard, like he, like he's still been trapped there all this time, they're they have missing, they are missing out on an opportunity, because I I thought about this man and what the fuck happened to him, and he did nothing wrong, you know, he got bamboozled by the best spies in the game, it's not his fault.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be incredible. That That would be such a, a great callback to just have that guy pop up again. But yeah, I- incredible sequence. And I mean, he he's part of it too. He really, really sells it. And, you know, the like getting sick or getting diarrhea or whatever happens to him, you know, that stuff's all really great with the, like the pen, the pen in the coffee cup. Yeah. That's, you know, great as far as, you know, and I think that's, um, you know, one of the things I did want to cover when talking about this film is how much it has, how much of it feels outdated or not. And when they do sort of like the lo-fi spy shit, like the the pen with the poison in it, I think it works. But once they start involving tech, that's when um <laughs> you know this silly. film starts it starts getting a little dated, you know, with the 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 watch computers and the um even like the map the the initial mask when Tom Cruise is like portraying that Russian general is really really iffy like the quality of it and and then I mean probably more more uh the most apparent is like the all the computer screens as as you had mentioned when Tom Cruise is emailing on that board you know all the graphics just look very dated and there's like when he hits send on that on that uh message it does a little (laughs) like the the letter the letter graphic and but I want to know Does this film, does the technology in this film contribute, you know, any sort of feeling of um, this film, like, being of a lesser quality for you? Like, do you think the tech affects it adversely, or do you think it's, you know, lends it some charm?
0: Charm, and it definitely gives the whole franchise uh, a, a real, like, you know, place in a historical you know, social context, things were very different in 1996, even when they were trying to act like ahead of the, the curve, you know, for the time, you know, the, they, we don't like, we have those things today. Like we have the video watch, you know, if, if you have like a, an uh, Apple watch or, or like a, a Fitbit or something like that, you fundamentally have that same capability today. It's not as novel as when it was used in this, but the, you, the whole point behind like like the, the, the gadgetry in, in this and in James Bond even is that, yeah, while it might be impossible at the time, it still solves some sort of need narratively for the characters. It makes sense that they would have a doohickey that does that, you know. So, yeah, the the, the, the stuff that, you know, is lo-fi, you know, like absolutely you know, still holds up there's a reason why that opening sequence you're seeing tom cruise mostly just on that tiny little monitor you know with all that grain so you couldn't see how bad it was until he was ripping it off of his face and let me tell you it was a lot more convincing on a fuzzy vhs tape than on <laughs> like when i watched it on paramount it, it did not look nearly as good when i was a kid and as soon as i saw that note i was like yeah i, I think you're right about, right about that even the the but the fake phelps at the end the, the the fake John Voight That's was that good. that was more convincing, and it it, it, it it hits a little bit more once he started like peeling his ear off.
1: Yeah, yeah that that one was definitely done better. Um, I think they actually did that one using some some digital trickery, um, some early digital trickery, and so yeah that one does look much better. But but yeah I mean speaking of of the end of the film or sort of the end sequence um the sort of helicopter train sequence um, again you know a, a really really well done series of events and um just you know a perfect sort of final action scene and I, I just i i love everything about it um as far as the you know attaching the helicopter to the train so he forces it in the tunnel and um i think my favorite something i've never noticed before But one one of my favorite shots in this entire movie is the actual shot that you get of John Voight's like face smashing into the railroad tracks when the helicopter crashes. Yeah, they fuck
0: him up. (laughs) Yeah, they did not do him. They did him dirty with that death too, because that doesn't really hold up very well either anymore. But it still is awesome, nonetheless.
1: (laughs) yeah it's very like i don't know it was jarringly graphic from from what i i remember and um yeah is there any anything you wanted to say about that whole sequence
0: yeah it he, like this is just you gotta have that the capstone on that spectacle the whole movie needs to be a roller coaster ride but at the end tom cruise needs to you know show you how much of a badass he really is and then you'll know, put you on the ass end of a bullet train and make it do loop-de-loops or whatever the fuck it is so I don't know it's just another reason to watch this movie it's episodic like this basically is like what like someone just said what if we did like four episodes of a TV show and just smashed it together you know like had it gave it an if it was an arc you know and you you had some things you know going on I don't know it just works perfectly and the, the as far as the conclusion goes it was, it it holds up. I think even to the more modern, you know, the spectacle that can be delivered, and that you know this man has pushed this franchise towards, like this is the one that you know set the set the tone, absolutely. And yeah, that last shot right there, all the way up to that that, that helicopter blade almost getting his neck. The I don't know. It's just this movie is just quintessentially Tom Cruise. This like and. I, when I think of that, this man, that like I think of the, this movie specifically, and uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm gonna watch it when they whenever he dies, I'm gonna pour one out and burn my copy of Dianetics and watch this movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, same. It's I, I this is this is one of the good ones. This this first one, and um, I'm really curious to see kind of where it's gonna land on my once we're finished watching all six of these, where it's going to land on my sort of rankings of these films, because for me going into these films, the ones that I think are most likely to change my, I'm most likely to change my opinion on are this one, number one, number three and number four. And I feel like, I feel like those three are the ones that are constantly sort of, replacing each other or changing places and sort of my, my mind's ranking of these films. So, but for this particular watch, I mean, I was reassured that this, this definitely still holds up and I would, I would encourage anybody to, to go watch it.
0: Absolutely. It's, it it's, it's a tweener to be sure, you know, it, it there's, there's, you know, parts of it that, you know, you know, maybe, you know, don't tickle everyone's funny bone, but yeah, I'm a little nostalgic slut for this movie and i'm a nostalgia slut for the second one but i'll let you introduce it
1: yeah so now on to mission impossible 2 uh directed by john woo came out in the year 2000 and this is widely considered the worst entry and i don't think there's any like nobody makes any bones about that Mm -hmm. um and i think mission impossible 2 lives up to its reputation by being a john woo movie first and a mission impossible movie second and there there was reports on set that there was turmoil between woo and literally every other person that was making this film he constantly churned through people um behind the camera you know firing the film's uh, editor at one point firing the film's cinematographer at one point well, at the same time, he was fighting a war on two fronts by, you know, constantly butting heads with Tom Cruise. Wow. And I think at, at, at the end of the day, he actually got locked out of the editing room for this movie um, by Cruise himself and just got, you know, kicked to the curb, essentially. Wow. And, you know, I get but I still get the sense that in the end, John Woo won out on his vision, his vision, because this film is just a cacophony of of woo-isms woo-isms it's it's you know slow motion the dual wielding pistols the drop kicks the bicycle kicks the kung fu chops and of course the pigeons
0: so many fucking
1: and pigeons. he he completely misses the point of the assignment and i, I don't think the film is completely without its merits but this is the movie, this is the hump that we must get over before we get to greener pastures with this series. And I'll sort of leave it there, but yeah, what what are your initial thoughts on Mission Impossible 2?
0: Yeah, this movie was just about being cool, you know, and it, the, the, there's just, it's so absurd. It is such a silly, dopey fucking movie, and it's hard to believe that Robert Town was involved in this. But like he was just a holdover from the first one, I think. But when you when you get down to it, yeah, the, the, there's nothing mysterious ab- about this movie. There's nothing interesting about its story. It's so dull and boring, but it is so awesome. Everything is so like stupidly awesome. Even though, like, it's, like, I don't know. I, I, I can't just say that it, like, it is awe-inspiring and amazing while also saying it's shit, but it is. I don't know why, but, like, I can't help but have affection for it. Like, it, sure. it, even, like, like the villain, Dugray Scott, he's just such a weirdo. And his villain, like, not his villain, his sidekick, you know, he's, yeah, he's so he's bullied. He, like, cuts the man's finger off for crying out loud with, a like, a fucking cigar snipper. But yeah, what do we make of Tandy, or is it? How do we, how do we properly Tandy. pronounce her? It? it still is Tandy, okay. I think
1: so. Yeah. Okay,
0: Tandy Newton. She was pretty awesome in this as like a like a thief. She's like something like that. She's like a safe cracker lady. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. A a thief that they prostitute out to <laughs> complete their mission. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: like you used to date our villain, so. You're gonna have to, you know, do you know, be our agent on the inside, and it's just so funny because this movie is just Tom Cruise and Dugray Scott cucking each other back and forth. You know what I mean? And like, there's even a part where Dugray Scott is wearing Tom Cruise's face,
1: yeah, acting like he's Tom
0: Cruise (laughs) more than once, more than once.
1: Yeah, this film goes. Yeah, this film goes all out with the masks. I think this is the out of of all the films in the the series this is the one that does the masks the most and you know sometimes it sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but yeah i mean it's um gosh i don't even know like where to start but i guess like it's this movie is like hopelessly from the year 2000 hopelessly
0: like to a fault an utter utter fault
1: yeah i mean and it's I mean, I think that we can look at it and sort of be nostalgic about it, yeah. you know, and it kind of, it, it gives us sort of those, you know, pit of your stomach, sort of um, almost cloying nostalgic feelings as you're watching it and, you know, reminiscing type feelings. But, you know, for a lot of people, I, I want to know what like a, what like a 20 year old thinks of this movie, because they probably just think it's absolute dog shit because of that very same fact. And. And but I just love that you know, you you are immediately put back in the year 2000, even from the first 10 minutes with you know, that airplane scene and like the chugging guitars when you know, uh, Duggery Scott rips off Tom Cruise's face and it's just like dun, 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 dun. and uh, and the weird like Afro pop song, yeah. as Tom Cruise is like c- you know, cliff um climbing and. And then, of course, the remix of the 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 awful like new metal remix of the uh, the intro song over the the opening credits. It's just like from the get go, this movie is from the year two thousand. And they made
0: every bad choice that the year two thousands you know could have possibly you know inspired them to make the 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 millennial turn did no one any favors, as we all know from our vantage point today. But for this series, I don't know what happened to Tom Cruise where he was like, yeah, this really successful blockbuster spy thing I have going on here. I want it to be more like, uh, let me see here. I want to do face-off. That's what I want to do. I want to literally just take faces off. It's a dumb joke. Everyone has made that joke. <laughs> That's pretty much what happened. He's like, who directed face-off? John Woo did. So like that was the logic. And yeah. the, and it it completely kind of like made it it really hard to know what a mission impossible movie was supposed to be for a second because then it suddenly just became all of this nonsense and like but i do want to bring this up what did you make of all of the rhetoric about making you know really dangerous viruses in a laboratory so that you could you better sell you know like vaccines and treatments on the open market for capitalistic reasons
1: Yeah. It's very, it's very timely, you know, with like the COVID uh, pandemic and stuff and, and um, yeah, Chimera. I mean, it definitely, the, yeah, Chimera, the, the, uh, the film certainly could, it can be slotted into the, you know, the year 2020 in many different ways with the, you know, the, the COVID comparisons. And I'm sure that I'm sure that the, the plot, you know, identifies with a lot of people who, you um, you know, a lot of people's conspiracies and stuff like that. And That's so, exactly
0: where I'm going with it. Just yeah, and yeah. so
1: it's it, it's very interesting. It does it does give it's predictive you, you know,
0: programming, Matt. It's predictive programming.
1: <laughs> it gives you it gives you um you know a different lens with which to watch the movie from. Maybe that makes it a little more interesting than the movie deserves. Um, but yeah. uh yeah, it, it 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 the 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 plot. I mean. One of the weird things that I thought about the first movie with how people reviewed the first movie is a lot of people called it too confusing. And this, the plot of this movie is almost like a overcorrection on that idea in that the the plot is incredibly simplified in this and with, with the whole chimera thing. And I think there's even a point in the film where Ving Rhames, like literally almost breaks the fourth wall when Tom Cruise tells him, you know, is basically feeding him exposition about Chimera, and then Ving Rhames's response is, "Oh, it's that simple, really?" And <laughs> it's, it's like it's it's fourth wall breaking. It, they're talking directly to those people who had a problem with the first movie being too confusing, and so, um, yeah. But it is an overcorrection. It, it, the the plot is oversimplified to almost the point of being stupid.
0: Yeah. No, it it is stupid. It categorically is stupid like it's it's utter you know nonsense and it is just an excuse to you know have a cheap love story inserted into a movie that you know didn't really need it so that we could have a really awesome showdown at some point in the more than once in the movie I guess but that whole thing with the motorcycles at the end it's like it didn't matter how old I, like when i saw this movie when i was 10 years old and it got like i i wanted i was so bored and tired like i wanted to just take a nap after i like first (laughs) saw this movie and by the time it was at the end and people's faces were getting bashed in for the thousandth time but it was all made worth it because of tom cruise riding that motorcycle with a leather jacket with explosions all around him like that stuff did fuel me a little bit but goddamn it that hair was vile
1: oh yeah his yeah, his like shoulder length hair. His, his Vanilla
0: Sky style. era hair. For some reason, <laughs> when he made movies that year, that's what his hairstyle was.
1: Yeah, it's so ridiculous, and it just—I mean—it highlights it highlights how ridiculous a lot of like, you know, I, I think John Woo is such a cornball, and sometimes his his you know style works for the types of films that he makes. You know, when he's off doing his his kung fu movies and his action movies, but. It doesn't work for something like this when you have these, these weird like slow motion scenes of like you know Tom Cruise and Tandy Newton looking at each other while their 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 convertibles are locked in a stalemate. Yeah. And, they're spinning and, and uh,
0: yeah, that yeah, like oh, that pissed me off so much. Even like I like that like that was so it was so dumb. Like like that car chase that like where they meet cute where he's like I'm recruiting you. Like, like that part killed me. I hated that so much as a kid, but now I love it. I don't know what to make of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, it, it's sort of a guilty pleasure something that you could look at in sort of that lens. And I mean, that's like a lot of stuff in this film, you know, just all, all as I said earlier, all these, like these John Woo isms with, you know, that and the, the pigeons and all of like the, like that, that uh, fist fight that Tom Cruise and Dougary Scott have at the end is so ridiculous with all the, you know, the moves that they're doing, like the drop kicks and like the bicycle kicks and the, uh, like the, the, like chops to the side of the neck. And it's just so crazy. And um, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, again, I'll go back to the idea that this is like, a John Woo movie first and a Mission Impossible movie second. And in that sort of idea, I think John Woo sort of won out in the end, you know, his vision in the end, whether or not that vision was successful or not.
0: Who had the most fun making this movie? And was it Anthony Hopkins?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, he he showed up to set for like five days and collected, probably collected like a cool like two million for it. And yeah, I mean, he's, he's great in this. I mean, he, he, again, making the most of your small amount of screen time, he, he, he's great.
0: And never to be seen again, even though like they, <laughs> they, they've tried to have like an M like character such as this in the series on occasion, the, this was the, I guess, I don't know why they, they went with him because it made it feel too much like a James Bond movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, it totally does. I mean, it's um, they that might have been the direction that they were trying to go with this too, because I do know that. I mean, the whole reason behind hiring John Woo in the first place was because um, Tom Cruise wanted a more action-packed film, and I mean, he certainly got it. I guess
0: goes <laughs> <laughs> without saying. So yeah, yeah. What, what else do you really? Yeah, what, what else is there to say? Really, really long really it things.
1: is or it feels long at feels least. i mean long. it is i think it is only a hair over like two hours oh. but yeah it does it does feel long i and, i
0: misread um, the the note there is oh, a okay. i never heard of this there yeah. is another cut of this fucking movie
1: yeah there there's another cut i i was as i was sort of researching it i i found out about this that somewhere out there there is a 163 minute cut of this movie that contains a lot of deceit. I need adult, to just pause of- you
0: there, Matt. I got a girl screaming yeah. on the patio. I need to see what's going on.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Right, is everything okay? Seats on her head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yes, what you were saying, there was a 163 minute cut of this film that contained deleted and extended scenes and more action. And it, it it was essentially what would be considered the r-rated cut of this movie because it is way more violent and that version of the movie was actually stolen like from the like editing bay at paramount and it was circulated in like bootleg vhs circles wow. for a long time but the thing is the kind of the thing that kind of sucks is it has now sort of disappeared off the face of the earth. And somewhere out there, somebody probably has it still, but they just haven't come forward. Um, but nobody's really been able to get a hold of that since.
0: Oh, that's a very interesting little you know, b- piece of information on a grail of cinema. Because I think I, yeah. that might have, I don't know, would the movie have been improved by more violence and some more context? maybe there would have been more of a story there and some connective tissue between some of the, the sequences that they've strung together. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, quite possibly because um, yeah, I mean, it's, it w it would be about yeah, 40, something minutes longer. And I, I think it probably would have a lot more context and a lot more, like a lot more downtime too, probably because that's that's sort of the interesting thing about about John Woo and the one thing I will give him credit for his his sort of directing is that he he gets a good mix of like you know action but then he also knows when to be like really intimate you know and do sort of these like these sort of smaller scale intimate scenes and I think those are sort of among some of the best scenes in the film like mm. the one one of the highlight scenes for me is like the the cigar, um, the scene where he cuts off, uh, uh, Dougree Scott cuts off his henchman's finger with the cigar cutter. I don't know. I just remember being so disturbed by that when I was a kid. Me too. And yeah, I was like, like that scene really like fucked me up. And, and, um, and then also the, another thing too, speaking of like disturbing imagery, the, the, like digital camera photos of that guy as he slowly, wastes away from chimera i i just i remember being so like disturbed by that as a kid like so much so that it gave me like nightmares like that imagery and um the the music yeah, at
0: it, the beginning like or not the music there's like diegetic uh children singing ring around the rosie while yeah, that while that yeah. scientist is standing there like watching them while he's holding a chimera in his hands that part yeah, haunts, basically that haunts my dreams
1: Yeah. It's basically the, the playground scene from Terminator two where, (laughs) you know, where, uh, Sarah Connor is, you know, looking through the chain link fence at all the kids and then they all blow up, you know, basically same, same deal, I think. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, he knows when to, you know, sort of make it more intimate. And I think those are, you know, among the more successful parts of the movie and, um, and yeah, speaking of that, um, you know they sort of do a redux version of the Langley break in in this film where they you know he Ethan Hunt breaks into that skyscraper and what what do you make of that scene was that successful for you was do you think it was just too much of a rehash or what
0: it, it did kind of feel like he was just going with what worked last time a little bit and that was like if the, if, if this movie has you know like a fault it can't deny it's that it just went to the same plays in the playbook a little too often with the mask pulls and the the, the but it did introduce the the voice changing tape that was the, the that one was cool. that was the cool addition that made some of the, the their goofy things a little bit more fantastical but the the one i guess why that sequence works better i guess than the original is that it eventually it erupts into a fucking Skyscraper encompassing gunfight—that is the one difference. The the key difference between this, the second and the first, is in the first, I don't think Tom Cruise fires a gun once, and in this one, he's shooting constantly, you know because it's a John Woo movie. And can you imagine a John Woo movie if the protagonist didn't fire handguns akimbo? You know, like <laughs> multiple times. So, like it is a little it, it it's different in that sense, but it. It, it kind of just gets bogged down in all the same, like, silliness of all the rest of it, I think. it I, I I would much rather watch the original Langley sequence than the hotel, you know, or the skyscraper in this one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, same. I, I do think it is among one of the more successful uh, sort of vignettes in this film. Um, the thing that I, you know, really picked up on this sort of rewatch was um this the person who did the score for this movie is a very young That's Hans true. zimmer and one of the things i picked up on was how similar the score is in this scene to very similar scenes from the dark knight where mm. um you know the the scenes in uh, china when bruce wayne is has to like abduct that that uh chinese like stockbroker or, or whoever he is and incredibly similar score and you you get little you get little hints of of his Dark Knight score in there, and
0: so yeah. Do you think that Chris Nolan watched Mission Impossible two when he thought about hiring Hans Zimmer?
1: I think it's entirely possible. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, um, because it is very similar, and and even more so than that. Um, towards the end of the film, when you know, on that the. Um, action scene on that island uh the car chase scene there is another bit of music there that sounds very similar to um i know that you you know probably don't have a frame of reference for this but there is a track off of the inception soundtrack called mumbasa
0: oh no i know I, i'm familiar you know that okay good yeah.
1: yeah it's incredibly i mean i would tell anybody who's listening to this just go youtube that that track off of the inception soundtrack and listen to it side by side with the 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 car motorcycle chase scene towards the end of this movie and it's very you know Hans Zimmer is pulling from his bag of tricks for this film and um and for those films the Nolan films and wow. um yeah very very similar and and the other thing too the other thing that makes the skyscraper scene work for me is this idea that they they should have expanded on you know maybe it was part of that 160 minute cut of this film but the idea that sean ambrose knows exactly what ethan hunt is thinking at all times and knows exactly how you know he plans out ethan hunt's like exact moves perfectly and um, so th- that skyscraper scene, you know, the entire time it's going on, Duggery Scott is like narrating what mm-hmm. he thinks is, you know, Ethan Hunt is going to do. And I think that's a really cool detail that I wish they would have expanded on for the movie that, you know, basically uh, Sean Ambrose is Ethan Hunt's equal in every way.
0: Yeah. And because that, that's the thing that I think was taken out to you know, reinforce the whole love triangle instead they wanted to yep. focus on that they just wanted him to be an evil guy they didn't want him to be a worthy villain in that sense and but the, you are right like the remnant of it is in the, the skyscraper you know, sequence at the very least Um, where did you think the franchise would go from here did you even care after you first saw it <laughs> Like, because I, I think every for a little bit, it maybe like, because did this movie make a lot of money? Like, yes, yeah. Okay, so it It, it still made money.
1: It was the highest grossing movie of two thousand.
0: Holy shit!
1: Really? It was, yeah. That's nuts. (laughs)
0: Because it really went off the rails after that. that Oh
1: yeah, it definitely did, and yeah, I mean, despite that fact that this was the highest grossing movie of two thousand there was still, I mean, you could tell that sort of the spirits were down after making this movie because, I mean, even so, people didn't like it at all, and it it left the franchise in a really weird place, and you could tell that was the case because, you know, there was a whole, like, six years, I believe, between this one and, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe even seven, maybe even seven years between this one and the third one, so... um you could tell that people were really down on this franchise after that. And to be quite honest, I don't even remember how I felt. I, (laughs) I, I, I I think honestly, I, I watched this movie and then just because of, you know, the age I was, I I would have been 11 years old. I just didn't give a shit. You know, I was just, I, I, I didn't care at all. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how down people were on it and how much, I mean, just go read up about all the behind the scenes shit with this movie. It was crazy. Just how many people would butt heads and, you know, Tom Cruise, this movie was supposed to be made in a a year earlier, but Tom Cruise was too busy making eyes wide shut. And that, that delayed this, that, that delayed this movie an entire year because Kubrick was just holding on to Cruise, you know, demanding reshoots, demanding, you know, all the takes, you know, a hundred takes and stuff like that. And so, yeah, this movie got fucked by Eyes Wide Shut, basically.
0: That's amazing. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Well, anything else you wanted to say about it?
1: Basically just, I mean, we we didn't touch a, a ton on sort of the entire last half hour, but it really does just go completely off the rails. And um I think that, you know, that entire last half hour is pretty like unsalvageable in in my (laughs) opinion. Like it's so bad and it's just cornball to the max. And, um, the one thing though, that I do think is cool is I do like the, um, the mask reveal with the henchman where you know, he put the duct tape over his mouth and makes Duggery Scott shoot to death his own henchman, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, that was awesome. Yeah, it it is cool. Yeah. And it is very graphic, very, very graphic, you know, and, and, you know, Brendan Gleeson, who we haven't even mentioned yet, (laughs) he's just standing there off in the corner, just looking like appalled at what's happening, you know, this man being shot to death in front of him, And then, And then, you know, the reveal when Dougree Scott pulls the mask aside and it's playing. One of the other weird things about the soundtrack in this film or the score, I should say, is the usage of like weird, like Gregorian chanting type music. And that's that's one of the scenes where where he pulls the mask off and it's it's doing like this sort of like, you know, like, yeah, sort of like, um you know choral this choral type music and um yeah very weird but that's um, kind of
0: a john wooism though isn't it like that's the kind of like thing he would play over top his doves
1: yeah for sure yeah Yeah. it's it's like sort of that choral like you know sort of carmina burana type um uh stuff and um yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty cheesy and i think that's kind of I don't know. I guess to to sort of start bringing it home, that's really the only way that you can watch this movie from a twenty twenty three lens is just from you know enjoy the cheese. I guess.
0: Yeah, it's like this. This is like Face Off. This is like Broken Arrow. This is you know John Woo firmly in his Hollywood era when this is the kind of shit he would make. And yeah, I can totally see why he would clash heads with Tom Cruise because John Woo. Is just like, hey, why are you trying to make tell me what to do? Like you you've hired me for a job, let me do my job, you know. Because next week we're gonna be oh that was not what I wanted to do. Let me pull that down. Next week we're gonna be covering the next two films in the series, and that is Mission Impossible Three and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. And I think the reason we get those two movies specifically is because of how this one was received.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think mission impossible three brings this franchise into the modern era where, you know, you, the one of the ways that I split up these films is one and two are kind of off by themselves in the previ- you know in the previous decades in the year you know the 90s in the 2000s but even though mission impossible 3 was only made 6 or 7 years after this one it firmly places this tril- or this uh series into the modern era
0: yeah absolutely mm-hmm. so looking forward to re- returning to those yeah. they were the only ones that i i've seen in a theater actually mm. are those two so it's it's fascinating how that works. The mentionables this week. It's you. I, I I hope Matt that you you purchased your copy of Tears of the Kingdom legally from a uh, you know a, a licensed retailer.
1: I did. Yes, I I, I um shilled out the sixty nine ninety nine for this game. This is Nintendo's very first seventy dollar game. Wow. Um, which seems like. Seem like it's gonna sort of be the the AAA price point from now on, but um, but yes, yeah, so far in in my opinion, anyways, probably worth it because this is what from what I can tell already, this is gonna be a game I'm gonna be spending a lot of time on. There's a lot here. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to see, and this is unashamedly a sequel to Breath of the Wild. And so if you if you didn't like that direction for the series, I would tell you to stay clear away from this one because it is very much more of the same and but sort of taken to the nth degree. And they've sort of doubled down on the the like creation aspect of Breath of the Wild, where there were all of these sort of like almost Minecraft type um tools you could play with where you could create your own you know your own vehicles or create your own like bridges and and structures and they've sort of doubled down on that fact Mm. which in my opinion is kind of a take it or leave it aspect of this series where i could care less honestly uh what i'm more in in for these uh games for is the sense of exploration and yeah it's definitely there because i spent i spent about um, about three and a half hours playing this game yesterday, and I just got off the like introductory island that you start on. Oh sure. And I've, you know, I finally, I finally got to the part where the game, like the open world, opens up. And so, yeah, this is this is um, going to be a major undertaking, I think. And, um, but I'm v- I'm very much enjoying it.
0: So right far. on. I'll have to check that out because if I'm going to spend seventy dollars on a game. I'm grateful for things like Game Pass so I can try things out. Because after yeah. trying, I tried to play Redfall, and holy oh <laughs> shit! I'll I'll just leave it at that. I'll just leave, <laughs> leave that one there. Not worth the seventy dollars. I kind of have some weird mentionables this week. It's two like YouTube things that have kind of yeah. been dominating my attentions for the last few weeks. But uh, Chris Gore and his gang at Film Threat and like other you know, you know, critics from around the the, the the whole sphere are doing a, like, faux court trial, you know, you, know, tr- you know, contending that Disney killed Star Wars. And there's, you know, a defense, you know, there's, you know, there's a prosecution. There's people who are saying, hey, no, like, you know, trying to defend them and say that, you know, Disney did nothing wrong. But it's, it's, it's fun. But you find out a lot of interesting things that you didn't know about, because I don't know about you, Matt, I haven't read uh, Bob Iger's autobiography, you know, which really kind of paint the from the way that the prosecution was putting it out there. This is a man who lied to George Lucas, and that's the main contention. He he lied to him and he said, told him that Lucasfilm would be given the Pixar treatment. They would be given the Marvel treatment. And he was lied to, damn it. He was lied to. That's 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 the main takeaway from the latest episode this week. But another thing that I've really been in- investing in is Sam Hyde's Fishbowl.tv, which is a kind of a throwback to like one of the like it's it's basically just a psychotic version of Big Brother. That's what it is. It's mm. it's Big Brother on you know, like stream. I don't know if it's wh- where it was streaming at, but I don't know even know if it's going to keep going. But he just bought a house and he rigged cameras everywhere. There's like speakers everywhere, and he just has people living in there doing challenges, all trying to like compete to win money, and it's 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 ridiculous. It is the most like uh, like autistic Aspergered out post ironic surreal absurdist bullshit ever but at the same time it's all real you know like mm-hmm. and he's in trouble and i don't know if they're going to keep doing it because you you people could pay money and then have like uh what do you call it it's not live not tv and and you could have like a text-to-speech thing you know like you like you can on okay. a lot of streaming things and some edgelords got in there and said some really awful things and uh, there's there's no one there to censor it you know because it's just running perpetually it's like it's autonomous at this point but now he's lost all of his access to stripe payments so i guess Uh. like watch the clips at least you know because the show might not be long for this world but uh, i appreciated it for what it was what is your pick of the week um you
1: know it's I'd probably say Mission Impossible 1 because I think it's the... It's the film that I watched this week that I think deserves the most reappraisal because I do think a lot of people just, especially nowadays, just like to pass it off as being too dated or being too, like, corny. And I think in many ways it holds up better than the second one. So... um and it's a better movie too. And so, yeah, I, I would say mission impossible one.
0: I'll echo that completely. You know, I, I would say if you're drunk, watch mission impossible too, but you know, if you actually want to have a good time and, you know, and watch a better film, there's only one choice. Um, thank you all for watching and we'll see you all next week. When we dive into the, the JJ Abrams, Brad bird era of the franchise, take care everyone. And, Have a good week.